drink and dance all night. Now let's talk of diapers and pacifiers and our pants are feeling tight. Bottle service with BKP. Bottle service with BKP. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bottle Service. It's me, your girl, Sarah Merrill Hall. Welcome back. I am so excited for this week's episode. We are covering a very important topic, one that is so crucial for that first year of baby's life, and that is the transition from milk to solid foods. I remember when I first started looking into this with Bodhi, um, I went to his six-month appointment and our pediatrician gave us like this two-minute spiel on how to do it, and afterwards, Brandon and I looked at each other and we're like, wait, what? (laughs) Like, needless to say, we were pretty underwhelmed by the information given to us and just had so many questions after we left, which is where people like our guests today really come in handy. So today we are joined by dietitian, nutrition professor, and mom of seven, Katie Ferraro. You may know her from Instagram. She runs the account at Baby Led Wean Team, where she shares tips, tricks, recipes, and tons of tools for this transition. Um, I know personally, her account really helped me navigate this whole thing like a champ. And oh, I should also mention she hosts the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, which is another great resource. So without further ado, let's welcome Katie Ferraro to the show. Katie, welcome. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. I am so pumped to have you. Okay, we are talking about the transition from milk to solid foods this week. For any of my new parents out there, like when do you even start to think about this transition? First of all, I am so surprised, Sarah, to hear you say that you were underwhelmed by what your pediatrician was sharing because most parents are like, I am totally overwhelmed by this idea of helping my baby transition from like an entirely milk diet, right? Infant milk up until six months of age. You have kept this baby alive with just breast milk or formula. And now it's time to like, you're telling me my baby's going to start eating avocado and lamb and like all these weird foods. Like parents get so overwhelmed. And my advice to parents is keep in mind all the things that your baby has done in the first six months of life, they are going to blow you away in the second six months of life with how much they're going to change. And ultimately our goal with nutrition is that By the time your baby is 12 months of age, most of their nutrition can be coming from food. Now, you can still be breastfeeding beyond one if you want to, but if you're formula feeding, you're going to knock that off around 12 months of age. Make the switch to cow's milk if your family does do that, but most of your baby's nutrition can be coming from food, and it doesn't happen overnight. So there's not like this switch at the six-month mark where all of a sudden all the iron that they got from you at the tail end of pregnancy is gone. It doesn't work like that. We have this six-month runway called the weaning period from six to 12 months of age to help your baby move from that point where they're getting 100% of nutrition from infant milk to the point where most of their nutrition can be coming from solid foods around the 12-month mark. Okay, so you're saying we start around six months. Um, Is that the same for all babies? Like, are there things other than age, some signs that you should look for to, like, know when it's time to start this? Well, that's a fabulous question. Your doctor may be giving advice. So start solid foods at four to six months of age. And we sometimes hear doctors still saying that. But if you look at the World Health Organization, the American Academy of Pediatrics, every major health body recommends exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months of life. And of course, if you can't or you don't, breastfeed infant formula is a very fine alternative. But for the first six months of life, that meets your baby's nutrition needs. So we like to see babies waiting until six months of age. Or if your baby was born pre 
prematurely, then we use what's called their six-month adjusted age. So I'll use the example. I have a set of quadruplets who were born at 34 weeks. So they were six weeks premature. At their six-month mark, you can bet I was hearing it in stereo from all the grandmas and everyone around me. Oh, you got to be feeding those babies food. At six months of age, they were they're chronologically six month old, like they had been out of the womb for six months. But from a developmental standpoint, we have to add in that six week pad. So I waited until they were six months plus six weeks before we even thought about solid food. That was their seven and a half month chronological age. So make sure you use that adjusted age if your baby was born prematurely. And then the second most important sign of readiness to eat is that your baby is sitting relatively unassisted. Now that's kind of a a gray terminology because not all babies need to be sitting for 12 seconds on their own or whatever the case may be to demonstrate that they're ready to eat. But the point is, Babies can't all sit on their own right at their six-month birthday. Your baby might be six months plus one week or six months plus two weeks, sometimes even six months plus three weeks. It's not typical to see a a full-term, typically developing baby not sitting on their own at seven months of age. If you're past the seven-month mark and your baby's not sitting, we generally say, you know, let's talk to your doctor about what might be going on and maybe need a referral for occupational therapy. But the, the bottom line is there's no benefit to starting solid foods before six months of age. Nutritionally, they don't need it. Developmentally, if they can't sit on their own, then they do not have the trunk strength and the head and neck control required to facilitate a safe swallow. So don't let anybody pressure you into starting early there's no nutritional upside there's increased risk of choking increased risk of food allergies if we start too early increased risk of unwanted weight gain down the road like just wait until your baby's ready and that's going to happen after the six month mark okay okay that's really good to know and wait a second I did not know you had quadruplets (laughs) okay I had one baby and then I had quadruplets and then when they were 18 months old I had twins so we had seven kids three and under for a while. Wow. 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 I'm so yeah, impressed because so even with just one it, baby, baby led weaning was a lifesaver. No, because I remember, I mean, I struggled a lot with spoon feeding my oldest and I did what my doctor said. I started at five months of age. She couldn't sit up on her own. She hated being spoon fed. I felt like she hated me. I felt like this abject failure as a parent. And then at the height of this like feeding frustration when I couldn't get her to eat real food and I'm like force feeding her, we found out we were pregnant with quadruplets. And I remember like the first time I saw all four of those babies on the ultrasound, the thought that went through my head was, how am I going to feed four babies at once when I can't even feed the one baby that I have at home? So I'm a dietitian and I had a background in feeding and this other dietitian colleague was in the NICU helping us feed the babies. And she's like, she had a baby the same age as mine. She's like, how's it going feeding your daughter at home? My daughter eats everything. And I was like, well, my daughter hates food and hates me. She's like, why don't you try this thing called baby led weaning? And I was like, baby linguini? Like, what are you talking about? I'd never (laughs) even heard of it. But at the time I was teaching college, I was working at UC San Francisco in the Bay Area and had some colleagues who were in infant feeding. And I was like, hey, is this baby led weaning thing legit? Like, it kind of sounds like this woo woo flash in the pan parenting thing. I'm not into that. And they're like, no, there's a real incredible body of evidence that supports a baby's ability and desire to feed themselves from the six month and beyond mark when the parents make age appropriate wholesome foods. And I was like, I'm going to figure this thing out because I decided, you know, when the quads were starting solid foods, I didn't have the bandwidth. I could not physically force feed four kids at once. And I really didn't want to, but we figured out how to make all sorts of different foods safe for babies to eat. And what I realized was that by the time they turned one, they had actually eaten over a hundred foods. And if you look at conventional adult led spoon feeding, those babies have had at most 10 or 15 foods by the time they turn one. And Sarah, you know this with a one-year-old, but Picky eating is developmentally appropriate for a one-year-old. 
picky, one-year-olds will develop and exhibit some form of picky eating and they're going to start losing foods they used to eat. And if your baby only has 10 or 15 foods that they can eat and then you lose those to picky eating, that becomes such a challenging child to feed. But if your baby can eat 100 foods and you lose 10 or 15 to picky eating, it's really not a big deal. So this whole idea of the 100 first foods approach was kind of born as I realized like, wait a minute, babies can eat so many more foods than we give them credit for. And baby led weaning kind of opens up this like huge world of possibility of all the foods that your baby can and wants to eat. Where I focus on is helping parents make those foods safe because you can't offer solid pieces of meat like steak or pork chops to babies or we don't give them raw apples. But you can make all of these foods in a modified version that's safe for your baby and you're taking advantage of that flavor window, which anyone with babies knows once they start eating and they get the hang of it, they'll like and accept such a wide variety of foods that that window closes during toddlerhood. So we really, really want to take advantage when that flavor window is open and help these babies achieve this diet diversity and aiming for a hundred foods is a really great benchmark which has been such a fun way to see babies now like all over the world do this approach and eat all their family foods like it's it's so heartwarming I I, I have no desire to have more babies I just love watching everyone else's babies eat <laughs> that is amazing and you're right I'm kind of in that phase right now where I, I feel like we were doing real good early on and he's uh, now in toddlerhood starting to like hate all the foods that he used to like but that we'll we'll, we'll talk about that in a second um, I, I really want to kind of focus in on like the very beginning of these, um, this stage and, um, we'll kind of go from there. Um, so when you just originally start doing this transition and you're like going from milk to solids, I remember, I think in the two minute talk that my pediatrician gave me about this, he, he mentioned to start on cereal. Like I started mixing in cereal to my baby's milk and I can't even remember how long we did that for. And then we transitioned into, um, purees and then from purees to um, solids from there. I'm interested in the baby led weaning approach. Is it that same trajectory or kind of how are you moving from milk to solids? So a lot of people mistakenly think that baby led weaning means skipping purees and it doesn't. Purees are an important texture for your baby to master. They're just not the only foods that a baby can eat. So you can honor the self-feeding principles of baby-led weaning and still offer naturally pureed foods like oatmeal or yogurt or unsweetened applesauce. And we do that using what's called the pre-loaded spoon approach. So this is an approach and a technique that was created by a speech-language pathologist named Don Winkleman, who also specializes in baby-led weaning. And essentially, you put the spoon, the stuff on the spoon and the spoon in the baby's hand, and then the baby is the one who brings the spoon to their mouth. Because putting anything in your baby's mouth, including a spoon, can be a choking hazard. And we want the baby to be the one driving the eating experience. That's a responsive feeding method. That's what we want to promote. We don't want to force fed babies who are visibly pushing the spoon and the food away from them because as the founder of the baby led weaning philosophy, Jill Rapley pointed out in her book, she co-wrote the original baby led weaning book, it's not that babies don't like food. It's that the babies don't like the feeding being done to them. And so we have to facilitate and foster their ability to feed themselves. So you can use purees if you want to. Now, most major health bodies recommend against the regular use of rice foods for babies like iron fortified white rice cereal because of the potential for arsenic toxicity. So that's a heavy metal that if fed on a regular basis, and there's certainly historically that's been the practice in 
the North American baby food culture, at least, was to force feed white rice cereal by spoon every single day and sometimes even multiple meals a day. We don't do that anymore. But there's lots of whole grains that we can make safe for babies to eat, but that the baby can be the one feeding themselves. So I teach what's called a purees for a few days approach for the first three days of starting solid foods. We help parents in one meal. We start with avocado, banana, and sweet potato. On day one, we do avocado, a thin puree of avocado, so avocado pureed with breast milk or formula, offered off of a preloaded spoon. We do that for about five minutes and parents are like, oh, the baby's touching it. They might slurp on it. They might eat the wrong end of the spoon. We're not concerned about how much they're eating. We just want to acknowledge baby is safe to swallow something besides infant milk. Check. The next five minutes, we do a chunkier puree, just the mashed up avocado. The babies will reach for it with their hand. We can put it on that preloaded spoon, but now they're having a slightly different texture check. And then the last 10 minutes of the meal, we put those strips of avocado out there. Let the baby pick it up, right? They don't have their pincer grasp early on. They have their whole hand or their palmer grasp. So they're going to rake and scoop those longer pieces of food. And in baby led weaning, you make the foods about the size of your adult pinky finger. The baby uses that whole hand or that palmer grasp rakes and scoops the food up and into their mouth. Now, they're going to miss their mouth. They're going to shove it in their face, in their ear, in their hair. They're going to sniff it. Some of them are going to even be reticent to touch it. The point is learning how to eat is this full sensory experience. And so we have to allow the babies to experience the food. And eventually that will lead to them learning how to get it neatly in their mouth and chew it and swallow it. But that whole process, it takes about six months, but practice makes progress. So the more practice they can have with finger foods, the better those babies will do. And there's actually research to indicate that babies who've had the least amount of practice with finger foods are actually at elevated risk of choking. And so you hear that from feeding therapists all the time, that much of what they see in toddlerhood is in feeding therapy is totally preventable had that child been allowed to experiment with textures other than purees at an earlier age and the age that they're safe to start that at is six months of age plus when they're showing those other reliable signs of readiness to eat. Wow. Okay. Learning. I'm already like relearning. I, I feel like I knew a lot of this and it's like all coming back to me. Um, I feel like one of the hard things that um, isn't kind of talked about enough is like how do you even teach the baby how to get the spoon in their mouth? Like, I remember this is something we we were good about. Like, we had him practicing this. And even recently, we were on a trip and, like, other parents were coming up to us and they're like, your kid is so good with utensils. Like, how did you get him to use utensils? So do you have any, like, tips around this? Well, practice makes progress, certainly, and encourage parents to focus first on the spoon so babies can start learning to eat off of a preloaded spoon around the six-month mark. And the spoon that I use for baby-led weaning was designed by that same speech-language pathologist that I was mentioning, and it's called the Tiny Spoon. It's by a company called Easy Peasy. And it looks very different from your traditional quote-unquote baby spoon because a spoon with a long handle, that's for adult-led spoon feeding, okay? A baby needs a short, fat, round handle that their chunky little hand can easily grab onto. It needs a very, very small bowl that's appropriate for the size of their smaller mouth. Some of those traditional baby spoons with the long handles, they have these huge, massive bowls that totally cover the baby's tongue, which can increase the risk of choking because the baby has no ability to move their tongue around, which is required for them to manipulate, maneuver the food and safely swallow it. So using the right spoon is appropriate. For the first few days, we dip the spoon into the food and then put the spoon in the baby's hand. You put your hand under the baby's hand and at first you may have to help gently guide the spoon to the baby's mouth and it's kind of a fine line between like hey who's doing the feeding here as long as the baby's hand is the one doing most of the leaning towards the mouth 
you're in good shape. And then what happens is you take the spoon and you put the stuff on it and then you lay it on the side of the suction mat or bowl and the baby will reach for it with their whole hand and bring it to their mouth. And then generally around nine or 10 months of age, babies will start dipping and scooping on their own. But ultimately our goal is that by 12 months of age, they're using the spoon pretty proficiently for foods that require a spoon. There's a mom, we have an, like a live office hours in as part of our program each week where the parents can come on and ask questions. And the mom was like, I, my, my baby's not using the spoon. I like put it out there this morning with the pancakes. And I was like, wait, excuse me. Like, do you eat pancakes with a spoon? Like, no. Like, the foods that you would use a spoon for, then put the spoon out there for your baby. But don't forget to do those finger foods and as many of those finger foods as you can because that's what our babies need practice with eating. And then the fork, there's no feeding milestone for forks for babies prior to 12 months of age. So we generally don't even introduce a baby fork until around the 12-month mark. And knowing that that, you know, after their one-year birthday, that's when they're going to get pretty proficient with the fork and the spoon. So Sarah, it sounds like your toddler is right on track with regards to their utensil use. Yeah, he's so funny. Like he won't he if I put food in front of him like sometimes I don't even want him to use the fork because it just kind of becomes a mess but he like demands to use his fork he like he loves a fork because he sees you guys using (laughs) forks and spoons as well and we have to remember that your baby's been observing you for months before they even start solid food so they they have a general idea of what to do and if you wait until they're truly ready they're so interested in the foods that you're offering that it kind of becomes inspiring to the parents and the caregivers like whoa hold up like this is actually fun because the baby is into this Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds kind of like the whole approach is like you're letting them explore foods and you kind of have to keep your hands back. Like I remember in those early days, like wanting to jump in several times, especially if he was like spilling crap all over the floor. And it was just kind of like, oh, let let him explore. This is like a new thing for him. And I know it's so hard. So many of us, myself, I mean, I'm a dietitian. I'm as type A as they come. And I want to be right in there, you know, with the baby spills. I want to be wiping their face. But if you think about that, constantly wiping your baby's face while they're trying to eat, it can be a very negative sensory experience. Like, how would you feel if you were trying to learn, like, how to eat sardines and this lady kept, like, attacking you with her wet wipe or her washcloth? That eating is a full sensory experience. And we need to let the babies experience the mess, especially with when they're practicing open cup drinking. So ideally, we want to see the babies transitioning off of the bottle around the 12 months mark and we want babies to go from breast or bottle to an open cup it's important for them developmentally it helps them meet their nutrition milestones it helps prevent overconsumption of milk there's all sorts of benefits to open cup drinking and all sorts of reasons why we don't want to use sippy cups and so when we're going to that open cup and they're learning how to drink we start first with a thicker liquid like breast milk or formula which your baby is familiar with and knows how to drink safely and we practice that open cup drinking and some of that dribbles down the side of their mouth and into their cute little fat neck rolls and we think oh my gosh they're getting dirty but it's important for the baby to experience that sense of discomfort because the next time the baby picks up the cup they'll make a micro adjustment as they're tilting the cup and tilting their head so that they don't have that dribble and that uncomfortable feeling so as much as we want to do everything for our babies we need to step back and remember what our jobs are and so a very kind of helpful mantra to keep in mind is it's called as a Big name, but Ellen Satter's Division of Responsibility in Feeding Theory. And Ellen Satter is a registered dietitian and a licensed therapist. And this Division of Responsibility in Feeding Theory, it's so helpful. And it's good for us when we have babies and it's good for us when we have bigger kids because it reminds us of what our jobs are. And we as parents have three jobs. We're in charge of what the child eats. We're in charge of where the child eats. And we're in charge of when they eat. What and where and when. That's your job, mom. But your Baby and your child is ultimately in charge of how much or even whether they eat. So we have to make a variety of foods and make them safe. 
We have to offer them in a safe feeding environment, and we have to offer them at set meal times. We do not let children graze throughout the day. But once we've done our job, we need to step back and let the baby do their job, which is the baby determines how much or even whether they eat. And remembering that will help you so much when you're feeling this pressure like, oh my gosh, my baby's not eating enough, or they're not getting enough iron, or they haven't had all the textures yet. Hey, as long as you're making the food, offering it regularly in a safe environment at set meal times, you are doing your job. Your baby needs lots of practice, but you do not need to make them eat because that is not your job. You want a good way to support a new mom? How about let her kick back and have some fun without the fear of paying for it the next day? I'm talking, of course, about morning recovery from more labs. Guys, if you want to recover faster after a night of drinking, you need some morning recovery in your life. It helps speed up the breakdown of alcohol-induced toxins. All you have to do is drink one little bottle of morning recovery the night you're drinking and let their proprietary blend of electrolytes and vitamins rehydrate and restore lost nutrients so you can wake up ready to take on whatever motherhood has in store for you. I absolutely love these. I feel like I'm at a point in my life where I just can't afford to feel like crap after a night of drinking. So these really come in handy and you can save 20% and support this show at the same time when you use code big kid at checkout 20% off. That is a nice little savings guys. So don't let rough mornings after drinking dampen the next day. Drink smarter with morning recovery at morelabs.com slash big kid. And again, use code big kid for 20% off your order. Cheers. I did want to go back to something you mentioned earlier because um, this was something different than I remember hearing. And I wonder if guidelines have changed at all. But when you mentioned like show introducing a a baby to a food, you did like one food per day. I feel like I remember in my, again, two minute spiel from my pediatrician, they told me to like start with one food and give them that for like three days and then move on to the next food. And it was, so it would be like applesauce for three days. And then, then it was like sweet potato puree for the three days after that. Have those guidelines changed? Like what are your, what are your thoughts on that? So there's absolutely no research to support the recommendation to wait three to five days between food. Unfortunately, many pediatricians still give that advice to parents and it does a huge disservice because what it does is it unnecessarily slows down the child's progression through foods and a baby will never achieve diet diversity and get most of their nutrition from food if they're unnecessarily waiting three to five days between trying new foods. Now, the premise of the wait three to five days between new foods, parents are like, well, I want to observe. What if the baby has an allergic reaction to food? The truth is, is that if your baby is going to have an allergic reaction to food, the vast majority of those reactions will occur within minutes and up to no more than two hours following ingestion. So it's not like your baby tries egg and then three days later has a weird diaper and you're like, oh my gosh, they're allergic to egg. It doesn't work like that. Again, the vast majority of food food allergy reactions rather will occur within minutes and up to no more than two hours following ingestion. So it's perfectly safe for your baby to try one or more new food every day. We just don't do two of the potentially allergenic foods for the first time on the same day, right? If you if you did like wheat and egg, for example, together and your baby had a reaction, how would you know if it was from wheat or from egg? So there's nine foods, we call them the big nine, and they account for about 90% of food allergy in North America. And those ones, we build in a little bit of a pad. You offer those foods a number of times. I usually do it over the course of a weekend, twice on Friday, twice on Saturday, twice on Sunday. By the end of the weekend, your baby's had that allergenic food six or seven times. 
there's no reaction. The next week we move right on. We do five new foods a week, in fact. I teach a five-step feeding framework where every week on Monday we introduce your baby to a new fruit. On Tuesday we do a new vegetable. On Wednesday we do a new starchy food. On Thursday we do a new protein food. And on Friday we do a new allergenic food. And so five foods a week, it's 20 foods a month. In five months, your baby has tried 100 different foods and it's perfectly safe. So part of the work that I do is also doing a lot of education for other feeding professionals as well as pediatricians because more than 90% of physicians in this country have never had a nutrition class. So a lot of them, they, they have a, there's a lot of stuff your pediatrician is doing at their appointments and feeding might take up two minutes. But if some of that time is spent spreading messages that aren't steeped in science or aren't supported by data and do a disservice to parents as a dietitian specializing in this space, I feel obligated to help change that narrative because we don't want parents hearing, oh, I got to wait five days between introducing innocuous foods that are never going to cause an allergic reaction in your baby. Yeah, that's good to know. Before we move on from um, allergenic foods, because this was something that I like lived in fear of when I first started introducing them to my baby. Um, what are they? I know you mentioned there's like the nine. And then what are you looking for? Like, what are the signs that you should be looking for to see if there's an allergic reaction? And then on top of that, if you are seeing signs, what do you do? Okay, so the nine foods that account for about 90% of food allergy in North America, we call them the big nine, include milk, peanut, and egg. Those are the first three. Those are the three most common pediatric food allergies. I tend to do those first, although there's no right or wrong allergenic food to introduce first. But the other ones are there's tree nuts, there's fish, there's shellfish, wheat, soy, and sesame. And again, we like to do, we do one a week, starting in week one of baby led weaning. So nine weeks into starting solid foods, your baby has had all of the big nine allergenic foods. And there's some research to show that early introduction of these allergenic foods helps prevent food allergy down the road. And so by the only thing you really can do to lower your baby's risk of food allergy is to offer these allergenic foods early and often. But as you say, it can feel stressful and overwhelming to offer a food to your baby that could potentially cause an allergic reaction. But it's important to note that while the numbers are kind of hard to come by for infancy, we think around 6% of infants have some form of food allergy. So 94% of your babies are not going to have a food allergy. But the only way to know if your baby is allergic to a food is to introduce the baby to that food. And while food allergies later in life can be potentially life-threatening, death from anaphylaxis from food allergies in infancy is almost all but unheard of. The, the reactions get more severe the older mm. your child gets. So it's another reason to actually be doing these early. Because not only are you reducing the risk of food allergy down the road. But if they do have a reaction, it's not going to be that severe. And if your baby ends up having a food allergy, then you don't feed those foods. You get tested, you get a diagnosis, you get followed by a pediatric allergist. And many times these children are able to eventually eat those foods again down the road. So if we take a big picture approach, you know, the, the likelihood of your child's throat closing up and them asphyxiating from eating an egg is almost zero. You're hard pressed to find anything in the literature about infants dying from anaphylaxis from food allergy reactions. So just kind of big picture. Yeah, it's scary, but it's good to do these in early on. And you do not need to drive to the emergency room and trial peanut butter, you know, in front of the ER. And there's social media stuff that goes on all the time and viral stuff about this, but it's not funny because it's scaring parents into doing something that's very routine at home introduction of allergenic foods is what the vast majority of families should be doing. Now, there's a very small subset of the population whose babies will be at increased risk for peanut allergy. So if your baby already has an egg allergy 
and or severe eczema, those two things, egg allergy and or severe eczema, that puts your baby at the high risk for peanut allergy category. And you have a slightly different subset of recommendations and you need to talk to your doctor. But for everybody else, you do the introduction of those allergenic foods at home. You do not need to buy special expensive supplement programs. There's all these gimmicky expensive subscription models where you put these little powders in your baby's bottle or in their cereal and it's scaring parents into offering their babies food we teach babies how to eat food by offering them food we offer these potentially allergenic food proteins in food form we do need to modify them to make them safe for babies but parents get this incredible sense of accomplishment and confidence once they pass a couple of those allergenic foods and they're like i can do this and they see their baby eating these foods you continue to reintroduce them to help your baby continually have exposure to those proteins and that's the only thing we can do as parents and caregivers to lower our baby's risk of food allergy Okay, that's really helpful to know. And for anybody, because that's kind of what I was picturing. I was picturing like it, they were going to go into anaphylactic shock or they were, or he was going to start looking like Hitch, like when his face blows up. <laughs> you know, like I've never had an allergic food reaction, so I, I didn't know. W- if it is a, a little bit of a lower, um, if it's not as severe, are you looking for like a rash? Are you looking for like itchiness? Like what are the signs that like they could be having a reaction? So signs of an allergic reaction look different in all sorts of different babies, including babies of different skin color. So historically, we've said, oh, a food allergy reaction is most often characterized first by some sort of skin-based symptoms. And that's generally hives, which can be described in a white-skinned baby as raised red itchy patches. But in a darker-skinned baby, they will look browner or darker. And so we want to be feeling to see if there's any raised itchy patches there. And they will tend to spread throughout the body. They may be localized around the face, but generally it tends to spread. Now, you have to keep in mind, there's lots of reasons why babies get little rashes around their face, especially when they're drooling, right? When they're drooling because they're teething. And teething is a three-year process. So your baby's going to be drooling a lot. And that drool, especially if there's a little bit of eczema or open skin around the face, and it comes into contact with the compounds from the new food, that can cause what we call a contact rash or contact dermatitis. And if your baby gets a little rash around their mouth from something like green pea, something that's not going to cause an allergy, and it goes away on its own, it's not a problem. But if the baby does have the hives, which spread throughout the body, and they can look as innocuous as mosquito bites, but they're raised red itchy patches or browner if darker skinned babies, and if it's accompanied by another symptom. So generally the baby will be you know, a super chill baby who tried egg for the first time and has full body hives and is absolutely flipping out and not being themselves. Wow, that's definitely a sign or I would, I would suspect true food allergy. Um, the baby may also have difficulty or labored breathing. Okay, or so that you see like the belly breathing coming from their stomach or swelling, especially swelling around the lips or the mouth, right? Right. Your airway starts in your mouth and ends in your lungs. So if we have swelling in the mouth, we can suspect that it's also going down the airway. And that's reason for concern. I mentioned sometimes vomiting or diarrhea or that marked change in demeanor where like your chill baby is now absolutely flipping out. So the hives plus one of those other symptoms that's generally a sign of an allergic reaction. And I'll give you an example of a mom that was on my office hours today. Seven-month-old baby had had eggs twice, no problem. On the third exposure to eggs, the baby started vomiting within 30 minutes and had raised red itchy patches and was flipping out and crying and is normally chill after food. And then the mom did it again the next day just to like, you know, she talked to her doctor. Same thing. The vomiting within an hour Okay, plus the red raised itchy patches, she could recreate that reaction. Yes, now we certainly suspect egg allergy. But another mom doing green peas, the baby gets a little rash around the face, it goes away in 20 minutes. 
that's not a sign of true food allergy because it was just a little rash on its own that went away. So it's generally the presence of the hives plus another symptom that would make you suspect food allergy. If you if this does happen to you though, you you call your doctor, you take pictures if you have the presence of mind because the pictures are so helpful and take notes. What time did you introduce the food? Approximately how much did they eat it? How was it prepared? Like what other ingredients might it have come in contact with? So take those notes and then follow up with your own healthcare provider who hopefully then can refer you to a pediatric allergist if you need or if they suspect true food allergy. Okay. Are you giving them anything like Benadryl or anything? So at this point, most doctors recommend against the regular use of Benadryl. Benadryl is a very, very antiquated drug. They always say if Benadryl got submitted today, it would never get approved. Benadryl causes drowsiness, which we don't want your baby falling asleep if they're having an allergic reaction. It also needs to be dosed by weight, which means that it's just a little bit more involved with regards to dosing. Parents always talk about baby Benadryl, but if you ever like go to the pharmacy and look there's no such thing as baby benadryl yeah and benadryl says do not give to a baby under age one so you need to call your doctor uh, what most pediatricians are recommending now is the use of zyrtec okay but it is important to point out that as antihistamines all these are going to do is help reduce some of the swelling and the itching it's not going to prevent that reaction from going on to be a full-blown food allergy reaction if that was going to happen anyway so you can talk to your doctor about maybe having some zyrtec on hand but for the most part the only way to know if your baby's allergic to these foods is to offer the foods to your baby. Got it. Okay. I'm glad we covered that because I feel like that's like a big scary thing when it comes to this transition. Um, you were talking about earlier, like the whole idea of like variety. We want to give variety to our baby. When do we move from like offering them one food a day to um, offering multiple things on their plate? And like how many, like in your ideal plate for a baby like what how many options do you how many food items would you recommend on a plate that's a great question and there's no right or wrong answer so parents get so much stress they watch these social media accounts that you have to do this you can't do this and what we really try to promote in our content at baby led wean team is listen there's this whole world of foods that your baby can eat what are you up for? I just want to show you what your baby can do. And in our program, what we generally do is the first, um, by day three, we're starting to introduce a plate with up to three foods on it. I personally feel that more than that can be overwhelming, both for the baby and for the parent, like who has time to make four different things. Mm -hmm. But what we generally do is for the first 10 minutes of the meal, we introduce the new food of the day. So explain how we do five new foods a week. Let's say it's day four. On day four, we do our first protein food. In our program, we do lamb. We do a shoulder, a leg a leg of lamb roast or a, sh a lamb shoulder roast makes these nice, soft, shreddable strips of meat. You, you let your baby explore with that for the first 10 minutes of the meal. The longer strips about the size of your adult pinky finger. We offer fatty cuts of meat because the more fat there is means the more moisture, which is easier for the baby to swallow. We add extra low salt broth. So there's lots of moisture going on. 10 minutes, let the baby explore with that. Most babies can sit for about 20 minutes in their chair for a meal. So for the second 10 minutes of the meal, I swap in a plate that has three compartments and we do the new food of the day. So I do lamb again. Oh, there's the second exposure to the new food. And then we do two familiar foods from a previous day. So maybe the day before we did polenta and the day before that we did beets. So there might be a little bit of lamb, which is the protein, a little bit of polenta, which is the carbohydrate food, and then a little bit of the fruit or vegetable. In this case, it's beets. And so for 10 minutes, the baby explores with that. So in that way, you're continuing to do one new food a day but you're reintroducing the familiar foods because we know babies need to see foods a lot of different times and have a lot of experience with those foods before they'll like or accept them. So you don't just try like broccoli once and be like, oh, my baby hates it and we're never doing broccoli again. 
we want to keep introducing new foods, but we need to reintroduce the familiar foods. So we start the, the traditional plate on day three, acknowledging that babies don't eat very much when they're just starting out with solid foods. It can take most babies somewhere between eight and 12 weeks before they really get the hang of feeding themselves. But it's so important that they have lots and lots of practice because they don't just wake up on their first birthday and magically know how to eat 100 foods. They, they need to start when they're 12 months of age learning how to do this. Or they can start, and you can start offering a variety of foods. But I like to do the new food on its own for the first 10 minutes just to make sure the baby isn't distracted by other foods and that they really do have the opportunity to try that food, explore it, sniff it, smell it, try the different textures, and certainly for the allergenic foods, get a little bit of that protein into their system, which is important for the exposure. Okay, I really like that tip because I feel like that was a problem when I started introducing foods, but I had other foods on the plate that he was already familiar with. He would ignore the new food. So I think that's like... Especially with fruit. And there's nothing wrong with fruit. Fruit is a wonderful food category, but I do encourage parents to offer the equivalent number of vegetable offerings as they do for fruit. Because parents will be like, oh my gosh, my one-year-old's only eating yogurt and fruit. Well, if the one-year-old's only ever seeing yogurt and fruit, they don't stand a chance. So babies will like and accept these, you know, the different bitter vegetables. And we can make the leafy greens safe for babies, but not if they're not exposed to them. And we all know it's super easy to offer a baby fruit. And as human beings, which babies also happen to be, we have a natural tendency and an affinity for the sweeter foods, right? If you've ever tasted breast milk or formula, of course it's sweet, right? The, The natural milk sugar in their lactose It's a naturally occurring sugar. It is on the sweeter side. Babies like that, and that's great. We don't want to deprive them of it. But if there's banana, I had a baby, there was bananas on the plate, or even in the eyesight, that baby wouldn't eat anything else. I have to physically take the fruit bowl and hide it around the corner if I wanted the baby to practice eating something like Brussels sprouts. I'm not going to make them do it, but I am going to set up the situation for success, which is I know this baby, and if he sees a banana, he's not going to eat anything else. Yeah, I just actually had that with lunch we had I gave him like some tortellinis and then like some banana on the side the kid just filled up on banana (laughs) like damn it yeah and you'll have other kids that only eat pasta right so it's like it's it's not them telling us what they need nutritionally we have to remember again what our job is we are in charge of what the baby eats and showing a variety of foods is important and as many vegetable offerings as you can do fruit offerings. And we also encourage parents, if you feel like your baby is preferentially favoring fruit, take what I call a fruit vacation. Take a week off of fruit. Parents are like, a week with no fruit? There is literally no documented case of a baby ever dying because they didn't get fruit for a week. Babies have a very short attention span. They're also very smart. One thing I think we have to talk about too when it comes to this, because I know when um, when I started introducing more solids to my baby, my husband and I were so scared about this, is choking. Um, can you talk a little bit about the difference between choking and gagging, what to look out for, and you know any insight around that? So that's what you're describing is so typical for parents, right? Every parent, no matter what method you're going to use to start solid foods, is going to be scared about choking. Here's a baby who's only ever had infant milk in their mouth, and now you're like, oh my gosh, you want this baby to eat lamb? I do want parents to know that if we wait until babies are ready to start solid food, so when they're sitting on their own independently, that's an indicator that they have the trunk strength and the head and neck control to facilitate a safe swallow. They can safely swallow something besides infant milk at that point, but not before that point. So these four-month-old babies who are all slumped over because they can't sit on their own, don't try to feed them, right? Just because you can shove a spoon of period gook down a baby's throat doesn't mean that you should. So the first step is waiting until the baby is really ready. The second set rega- step regarding safety and reducing choking risk is making sure that your baby has a safe seat 
where they can eat, okay? And a high chair is the safest place for a baby to eat, and their feet should be resting flat on a solid foot plate. You may have to make adjustments to your footrest. We have a lot of, you know, most high chairs are not made for six-month-old babies because if they were, your baby would grow out of it when they were seven months old, and you'd be, like, super annoyed. Why am I buying a new high chair every month? They make high chairs for two-year-olds, okay? So you're going to have to roll up a dish towel, for example, and stick it behind your baby's back to help their back be flat. Your baby's back should be flat when they're sitting in a high chair. Their waist should be at a 90-degree angle. Their knees should be at a 90 degree angle and their ankles should be at a 90 degree angle. I call that the three by 90 setup, 90 degrees at the waist, the knees and the ankle and the feet are resting flat on a solid foot plate such that when the baby starts eating food and if this food, which is kind of a foreign object, but they put it in their mouth and if it goes a little too far back and they feel a little uncomfortable with it, they're going to gag and that's fine because they're going to stomp their feet down on that solid foot plate. They're going to stabilize their core and they're going to use the muscles in their mouth to push that food forward away from their airway and protect their airway, which they can do from six months of age on, but they can't do that if they don't have their feet resting flat on a solid foot plate. So you may have to adjust the foot rest. We have parents who add things like yoga blocks affixed with bungee cords, or we do old textbooks or Amazon boxes, whatever the case may be to get that foot rest up so your baby's feet are resting flat. So if you wait until your baby is ready, and they're positioned safely in a high chair. The third thing to lower the risk of choking is that the food needs to be prepared safely. So we do soft strips of solid food about the size of your adult pinky finger that the baby can pick up and eat to them eat by themselves, as I explained earlier, but we don't do really small pieces of food, okay? Because babies don't have their pincer grasp early on. They can't pick those foods up and put them in their mouth. And even if they got into their mouth, assuming that the parent shoved the small piece of food in the baby's mouth, that small piece of food is exactly the size that could potentially occlude the baby's airway. So all we do and teach in our programs in my 100 First Foods approach is how to make each of the 100 foods safe for your baby so that starting at six months of age, they can learn how to eat these foods because there's lots of misinformation out there about preparing foods for babies and we don't want your baby to choke. And I remind parents though that the research shows us that there's no higher risk of choking with this approach compared to conventional adult-led spoon feeding, but that's only true if parents are educated about reducing choking risk. And that's what we teach. We also encourage parents to take an infant refresher CPR course before they start solid foods. I know you took CPR before your baby was born, but like that was over six months ago. I can't remember what I had for breakfast today, like let alone the particulars of a CPR course that I took six months ago. So take infant CPR. Choking is a rare but real risk. If your baby does choke on food, you need to know how to administer the back blows and CPR can save your baby's life. But safe positioning, waiting till they're ready, and then proper food preparation are the three things you can do to lower your baby's risk of choking on food. Okay. That is incredibly helpful. Oh my gosh. Um, final question. Cause I know we need to wrap up. Um, just cause this is something, especially I'm seeing now, like later on is like when kids just will not eat, they're throwing tantrums. They don't want to sit in the high chair. Are there any tips you can do to like help that? <laughs> so if your child is refusing food and you think it's not typical and wow, like I see other people's kids and this is not, and don't encourage parents to com- pair their children to other children. But if you're like, this is a problem, ask your pediatrician and ask for a referral to a feeding therapist. Feeding therapists are especially trained occupational therapists or speech and language pathologists who specialize in feeding and have techniques and tactics that can help your child experience success with self-feeding. So they're there as an ally for you. It's not a lifelong diagnosis. They sometimes in a few short sessions can help you get some exercises that you can do with your child to get back on track. If you're dealing with a toddler who absolutely refuses to eat, my suggestion is to take a closer look at two things, milk and snacks. Milk and snacks are the two biggest saboteurs of the toddler diet. Everyone thinks milk is good. All things are fine in moderation, right? Most toddlers drink too much milk. 
the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends for one-year-olds between 16 and 24 ounces of milk. I routinely see children drinking 36, 42, 48 ounces of milk. Of course, they're not going to eat at mealtime because their little tiny bellies are full of milk and there's absolutely no feeling of what I call casual hunger. It is okay to let your child experience casual hunger. Your child should have some degree of hunger when they come to the mealtime so they're interested and engaged in meals. And then the second one being snacks. If the child is constantly being pumped full of snacks, their tiny little bellies are full of snacks and there's no way that they're going to eat the wholesome meals that you are offering. So you can very quickly kind of reset the situation in your own house where the milk that the toddler is having between meals, that's serving as their snacks. And if you can stay on a pretty tight meal schedule with meals every four to five hours, it is perfectly fine to not do snacks. And a lot of people are like, I can't believe you don't feed snacks. I don't feed snacks unless until they get to preschool. That's when preschool is like, oh my gosh, you have to send snacks and then it's the worst because you have to do it, but you don't have to feed babies and you certainly do not have to feed one-year-old snacks. No, that makes a lot of sense. Katie, thank you so much for all of your help today. If people want to find more from you, where can they, where can they find you? Well, thank you for covering this topic because I know starting solid foods can be anxiety inducing. If you want to learn more about baby led weaning and how to do it the safe way, I teach a free online video workshop. It's called Baby Led Weaning for Beginners. I give everybody on that workshop a copy of my original 100 First Foods list so you'll never run out of ideas of foods your baby can eat. And you can sign up for that workshop. You can take it today, later today, tomorrow. It's it's there for you at your convenience when you need it. And everything's online on my website at babyledweaning.co. Amazing. I'm going to link all of that in show notes, guys. So make sure to check her out. Thank you so much for joining us this week and we'll see you next time. Bye.